we were in Matthew 24 before Christmas, and I'm glad the, the break worked out as it did. Uh, see, we're starting now into Matthew 25, and the subject that we talked about in chapter 24 happens to also be the subject of chapter 25. So there's a lot of crossover with what we already covered, and that could feel like repetition, could feel repetitive. So I'm glad there was at least a little break for us. Now, why, why would Jesus be repetitive in his teaching? The easiest answer is because of how important what he has to say is. So remember that Jesus had come to Jerusalem. He's about to be crucified and then raised on the third day. And not long after that, he'd ascend to heaven to the right hand of the Father. So these were the last moments that Jesus had with his disciples. And he needed to prepare them. For what was ahead, he needed to prepare them because they didn't understand his mission. They didn't understand his death and resurrection yet. And they didn't understand, certainly not, his two comings. So he needed to prepare them. And we need to be prepared too because that's where we're at. These two comings of Christ. We're in between them. So Jesus, he talks about in this section about his return. And he's warning his disciples about the judgment that's going to happen at that time. That's going to separate his followers, those that profess to be his followers. And that's one of those subjects I think that can sound harsh. And this morning when you're listening, it might sound harsh to you. And I just want to say that his warning isn't harsh. It's loving. I think you could look at what Jesus is saying here and you could think that it sounds like Jesus is trying to manipulate us. Like he's saying, you better listen to me or else. Like bullies do. Whether it's on the playground or your boss, there are those people that try to get you to do what they want you to do by warning you. But when you do what they want you to do, do you want to do it? See, that's a very, very important facet to doing what God wants. You're not actually doing the right thing if you're doing it because you have to. You only do the right thing if you want to do it. That's what doing the right thing is. So Jesus is not manipulating us into to right behavior. So why such a serious warning then? Because some things are very serious. Life or death serious. Heaven or hell serious. I don't know too many parents who, if they observe their kid running out into the street without looking both ways, walk up and say, honey, you know, I, could you maybe not do that next time? That's not what I'm doing. I'm running out there saying, what are you doing? And there, there, there's a warning. I mean, I love my kid. I don't want them to run out and do that. I, I care about them. Warnings are loving. They demonstrate care and concern. So if you don't think there's really a danger, that's when the warning sounds harsh. least harsher than you think it should be when i've confronted my kids that way saying what are you doing they invariably they they say what wasn't that bad they have no idea that they just did something very very serious so it seems to them that i'm being harsh in that moment even nitpicky because to them it seems like it's, it's nothing more than a potentially skinned knee that's not what i'm warning them about It's more serious than that. So Jesus followers, we need to hear this warning because of how serious it is. It's very important for us to understand. For anyone who would call themselves a Christian, 
What Jesus is talking about, it's not a matter of life and death. It's more serious than that. It's a matter of heaven or hell. So if you're listening to this story and you think at some point that Jesus is being a little harsh, I just want you to understand this because you don't realize how real and serious the danger is. So here's the truth that Jesus teaches us in this section. We cannot know when Jesus is coming back. So you're either going to be ready or not when he does. That's what he taught back in chapter 24. It's what he's teaching again. And whether you're ready or not is a matter of heaven or hell. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story Jesus tells in chapter 25. You can turn to Matthew 25. We're going to look at this story, and then we're going to think about the comparison Jesus is making in this story. And then we're going to respond. Think about how to respond to his story. So we're going to look at the story, make the comparison, and respond to the story. That's where we're headed this morning. But first, we need to understand something about the story. This, this story is about a first century Jewish wedding. And none of us lived in Israel in the first century. So if we're going to connect with the story, we need to know some things about weddings at this time and in this place. Now, the truth is we don't actually know a lot about first century Jewish weddings. The Bible doesn't really talk a lot about ceremonies in either the Old or New Testament when it comes to weddings. And we have very little from first century Jewish people about their weddings. But the picture we can kind of pull together is that the guys who were ready to get married were between 18 and 20 when they were first ready. And the girls were much younger than that when they were considered ready. And the couples could meet and marry like they do today, but very often those marriages were arranged. So once a marriage was planned, the couple went through this process called betrothal. Now, you might remember it from Matthew chapter 1, where it said that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. It's a process that was a legally binding relationship. And what would happen is the two families would get together in the bride's home where the father of the bride would negotiate with the groom. And they would come up with an arrangement. And there'd be a, a contract even. And there would be bride money that would demonstrate that this, this groom's promising his intentions here. And there'd even be witnesses to make sure that this, this was legally binding and a celebration after it was over. But the bride would stay there in her father's house until the, both of them, the bride and the groom, were ready to be married. Or as far as they felt, they were ready to be married. Now, again, we don't know much about the actual ceremonies, but from different sources and from our passage this morning, we can, again, piece something together. When the bride and the groom were ready, the groom would go to the bride's house and take her back to his home to be his wife. There'd be a ceremony. And now the ceremony could take place at the bride's house, but it probably more often took place at the groom's house. And then at some point in that process, there would be a processional. And that processional would involve people gathering to meet the groom and possibly the bride and to escort them to the wedding feast. That's important because that's what our story focuses on. It focuses on that processional. So just like in our weddings, different individuals were a part of this wedding celebration. They had different tasks. So today we have bridesmaids and groomsmen who are part of a processional before and after the wedding ceremony. Well, these girls were part of this ceremony, these young unmarried girls that Jesus mentions. They had a job to do in this 
wedding and specifically in the processional. Their job was to light the way. These processionals tended to be at night. So they had to have torches to light the way. Now, just like with weddings today, these, these tasks, these jobs would have been given beforehand. So this is well in advance. And so part of their job of lighting this processional meant they needed to prepare torches for that task. They needed to be ready with these torches. So the word translated lamps in, in starting in verse 1, it's, it's not referring to those smaller lamps with wicks that would be used indoors. It's, it's referring to torches that had rags uh, that were loaded with oil wrapped around a stick and those would be what would give enough light outside. And John Nolan, in his commentary, he explained how these girls would have prepared these torches. They would have taken these rags, they would have soaked them in oil, and then they would have squeezed out the excess oil and wrapped them around the stick, and they would leave them there. And then they would have some extra oil for the time when they were going to light these torches. When it was time to light the torches, they would then re-soak the lamp. They had to soak it just enough so that... It had the amount that they needed to light the way to be bright enough and to last long enough, but not so much that it was dripping flames, you know, as they were. That'd be a problem. So they, they had to prepare beforehand. Now, people, when you, when you hear this story, you could assume that these girls are the bride's friends. And that we kind of think of them as bridesmaids. That's because we're thinking about it in terms of our weddings. We don't know exactly who they were associated with. The truth is, truth is they could have been associated with the groom. They could have come from even his household. They may have even been part of the servants in his household. Based on the way these girls respond to this bridegroom, they call him Lord in verse 11. That could be the case. But at any rate, they're very young. In the ESV, it translates the word for them as virgins. The, the connotation with that is, is focused on the fact that they're in an unmarried status, but they're old enough to be married, but just old enough. They aren't yet married, so they're young. Probably in their early teens. And at the right moment, these girls, along with the rest of the family and friends that are invited to the wedding feast, they would be informed, the, the groom's going to get his bride. And so that would be when they would head to the meeting place. That's referred to in verses 1 and 6. Now the word for these, this meeting place, it's, it's slightly different in both places, but they're basically synonymous. And they're used in other contexts to describe the reception of an important person to your town. So in that case, the, the people from the town, they'd go out and they'd meet the, the important person and escort him back to their town. Or it, it's used also of a people of a city going out to meet their, their ruler who had come back from a victorious battle and escorting him back to the city. So here, this meeting place is just outside the place where the wedding celebration was going to be. And these girls, with, along with these other members of the wedding processional they're going to gather there so that they can meet the groom and possibly the the bride who's not mentioned here but they would escort them back to the wedding feast and they would celebrate there so that torchlight was necessary again because it's night and they're lighting the way and also as a means of celebration you know bright lights in the in the dark is a way to kind of celebrate so they'd arrive back at the feast and then the doors would be shut, excluding anybody who wasn't invited to the wedding. And they'd all celebrate at that point. So that's the background to the story that Jesus tells, that the disciples would have understood as best we can put together. So let's take a look at that now. Let's look at the story in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. The first couple verses, 1 and 2, 
they set the story up. They, they introduce us to what's going on. And they, they let us know this is a parable. That's why they use the familiar language, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So here's the situation. There are 10 young women who've been told that it's time to grab their torches and go to meet the bride, the bridegroom, and to escort him in his processional to the wedding feast. But in verse 2, Jesus points something out that we have to pay attention to. We want to keep our eye on this throughout the story. Of these 10 girls, these 10 young unmarried girls, Jesus says five of them were foolish and five were wise. And then he explains what he means in verses 3 and 4. See these, when the foolish girls took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise girls took flasks of oil with their lamps. Now the way that the ESV words that, it sounds like only the five girls took these flasks. The actual wording in the original, it, I think it seems to suggest that they both had flasks. They, they both had containers that were supposed to have oil in it. But it's only the specific containers that the wise girls were using that had the oil. The foolish girls had forgotten to put oil in their containers. So they would have naturally grabbed both the container and the torch and walked out. And you can understand why those foolish girls had no idea that they had walked out with an empty container. Because they were just doing what they normally do. They grabbed both things. So they looked all the same. All ten of these girls would have looked the same. It wouldn't have been obvious. Hey, where's your container? So they both have done this preparation. But again, in verses 3 and 4, it's clear that only they, they both, in other words, they both pre-soaked those rags, squeezed out the excess oil, wrapped up their sticks, their, their, their torch was ready, but only the wise girls had remembered to put oil in the containers. Then comes a surprise in verse 5. The bridegroom was delayed. So he, he didn't come when they thought he was going to come. So these young girls, I mean, they likely had a full day of work. They'd probably been helping in their respective households, if not serving in the bridegroom's household. So they're tired. And they're young, and they're, they're out there in, at night, and it's dark, and they're not doing anything, and they're standing around. So they do what everybody does. All, all ten of them, they get drowsy, and they start sleeping. And it was, in the, it was during the middle of the night when they heard a cry. Call out, look, it's the bridegroom. Go out to meet him. And sure enough, off in the distance, they could see the bridegroom coming. So they started to prepare. They started to prepare their torches. It's translated trim, but again, the word doesn't mean trimmed. That's just an interpretation based on what lamps they were thinking of. It just means they prepared them. They prepared their lights. They prepared their torches. So they grabbed their containers with oil. They would have dipped those torches that hadn't yet been lit, prepared them with oil, and lit them. So it's at this point the foolish girls, they're, they're realizing their problem. But their first response seems to be to go ahead and light their lamps. They don't have the oil, but they go ahead and see if it'll just still work. And it doesn't work. But the, there's not enough oil in these torches to last very long. So they start to go out immediately. That's the way it's described here. And so they desperately turn to the wise girls who would remember their oil. And they say, give us some of your oil for our lamps are growing, going out. As soon as they lit them, they're already going out. At this point, those wise girls, they sound a little callous. They say, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. See, they're, they're not going to share their oil, but they have a really good reason. There's, it'd be bad enough that only half of the torches are lit. 
and able to escort the bridegroom. But imagine if they share their oil and they light their torches and they walk back with the bridegroom only to get about halfway and all the torches go out. That would be much worse. So their suggestion, it's not an unreasonable suggestion because these shops would probably stay open late when there was a wedding. And even if the shops had closed, the, the girls could have woken the shopkeeper there, would have been in his home, and, and would have been able to potentially get this oil. So that's what they tell him to do. They say, run as quick as you can to the shop, get some oil, and then come back. But verse 10 says that they didn't get back in time. So author, they're trying to rectify their foolishness for not preparing. And that's when the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. The wise girls did their job. They were ready for the bridegroom. They welcomed him. They celebrated in the processional. They raised their torches. They walked joyfully back to the wedding feast. And Jesus is probably not just saying they shut the doors. The idea is they secured them. He probably locked the doors. They're keeping out those who don't belong to this wedding celebration. So the girls come back only after the doors have been shut, after they've been locked. And they call out, Lord, Lord, open to us. It's a respectful cry to the bridegroom. Notice his reply. He says in verse 12, truly I say to you, I do not know you. He's saying you don't belong here. And that's a shocking end of the story. That's what Jesus liked to do. He liked to surprise people with his stories in his parables. And that twist was crucial to his point, which always had to do with the kingdom of God. Now, parables would conceal the truth about the kingdom from the crowd. But for his followers, Jesus explains in chapter 13 that parables were supposed to help his followers understand truths about the kingdom that had not been clearly explained in the Old Testament. In fact, in Matthew 13, 51, Jesus said that his parables even trained his disciples for the kingdom. It was preparation for the kingdom. So these parables would help correct wrong conclusions that people had drawn. Because people in their day, they looked at the teaching on the kingdom and they'd come to different conclusions. But the mysteries hadn't been revealed yet. It wasn't until Jesus came and revealed the way that the kingdom would be, the nature of the kingdom, that they could understand it. Because Jesus was about to initiate the kingdom by his death and resurrection. But it wouldn't be complete until his return. And so sometimes the parables that Jesus tells, they focus on how the kingdom looks before he returned. How the kingdom looked in this in-between time. But there are other parables that focused on his return. When the kingdom would be completely done. And that's what we have here. Now how parables taught about the kingdom was by way of comparison. They were like extended similes. That's why you have the language of the kingdom of heaven is like something. So Jesus would compare the situa some situation in his day with what the kingdom is like. So parables weren't allegories where everything in the story had a hidden meaning behind it. But there were these different details in the story that were analogous to the kingdom. There were Comparisons being made. So, for example, you have in the parable of the unmerciful judge. The judge, he's analogous to God in his role, but not in his lack of mercy. So you do have to be careful. 
about what the comparisons are in these stories. So that's what we want to we understand. The key is understanding what Jesus was comparing. And so he points us in the right direction in verse 13. He says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's the very same thing he said back in chapter 24. He's comparing the situation of a wedding processional and a wedding feast with what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back, when he returns and completely establishes the kingdom. So we want to think about this comparison. What are the points of contact between Jesus' return and fully establishing his kingdom and the situation with the bridegroom and these ten girls and the wedding feast and especially this idea of readiness that he's already talked so much about? So first of all, who does the bridegroom represent? In the Old Testament, God compared himself to a bridegroom. And Israel was his bride. So for example, God promised to take Israel to be his wife forever on the day of the Lord in Hosea 2.19. And God described himself as Israel's husband who was going to take her back. After, because of her sin, he'd rejected them, but he was going to take her back. And so Isaiah 62.5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. But Jesus referred to himself as the bridegroom. Back in Matthew 9.15. This is yet another way that Jesus is subtly putting himself in the role of God. So Jesus is the bridegroom who comes for his bride, which in Ephesians 5.32 is the church. In Revelation uh, chapter 22, ends, it, it ends with this statement from John. The spirit and the bride say come. That's in reference to the church's longing for Christ's return. And then you have these details in this story. And as with the different things that are said in Matthew 24, there's a connection with what others have said about Christ's return. So there is a similarity with what Paul says and describes with Christ's return in 1 Thessalonians. In fact, the word for meeting in, uh, with meeting with the bridegroom in verse 6 is the identical word used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 for when Jesus' followers meet him in the air at his return. And just before that verse, there is a cry announcing his arrival. So Jesus represents the bridegroom. But who then do these young girls represent? Well, In this story, Jesus' followers aren't represented as the bride. Here, they're pictured as these girls. And there are ones who are ready for Jesus or for the bridegroom and those that are not. That's the very truth that Jesus has been impressing on his followers in chapter 24. His disciples need to be ready. So they need to be in the state of readiness so these girls represent his followers. But you notice that only some of them enjoy the kingdom. Not all of them enjoy the kingdom. Not all of them enjoy the wedding. Again, that's exactly what Jesus was pointing out in chapter 24. There were two in the field. And two in the mill. One is experiencing the kingdom and one does not. That's the idea. And understand, the idea was not one of them is his follower and one is not. They were both professing followers, but only one of them enjoys the kingdom. And only one, only the faithful and wise servant of verse 45 enjoyed the kingdom, not the wicked servant of verse 48. 
And again, both of those servants, they are followers of Jesus. They are those who profess to be followers of Jesus. One is genuine, one is a hypocrite. One is faithful, one is false. And that's the same idea here with these girls. That's what they represent. Five of them are genuine followers. Five are false followers. So Jesus tells these false followers, these foolish girls, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And that's a solemn pronouncement. You can hear it. It almost sounds like a verdict. He says, truly I say to you. It represents the judgment in the end. When the truth of the matter regarding those who are his followers is revealed. Now in the Old Testament, God is said to know his people. So Amos 3.2, God says to his people, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. But now this relationship with God is through Jesus and it extends to all the nations. So Paul speaks to Gentiles. He says that they formerly did not know God. And then he says in Galatians 4, 9, but now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God. And in 2 Timothy 2, 19, Paul takes again an idea from the Old Testament used for Israel and he applies it to believers saying, the Lord knows who those who are his. And again, Jesus is now in the role of God where he knows his people. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew chapter 7, back in his Sermon on the Mount. In verse 22 there, he's referring to those entering the kingdom and he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then in the next verse, Jesus said, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart. From me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the key point to Jesus' warning in this passage. There are those who believe that they're his followers and are, in fact, genuinely his followers. And there are those who believe that they're his followers, but who are not his followers. And in John, Jesus is very clear. He knows who really are his sheep. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So when he says to these girls, I do not know you, he's comparing them to those who have experienced a crisis moment in his day, where they declared themselves to be his followers. They may have even been like the, the people that Jesus describes in this parable of the source, soils. They may have received him with joy, received the good news with joy. And it was real joy. They weren't faking it. But that crisis moment of first acceptance was not the one that mattered for them. It was the crisis moment where they stood before their professed Lord, one that they said was their Lord, only to find out they had no relationship with him. So these ten girls, they represent genuine and false disciples, and only Christ will reveal which is which for sure when he returns. So what does the wedding feast represent? You can probably guess this. Just as Jesus used a feast to describe the enjoyment of the kingdom, Back in chapter 8 and verse 11, or more closely, just as Jesus compares the kingdom to a wedding feast in chapter 22, the wedding feast represents the enjoyment of the kingdom. 
So it's a description, again, of the kingdom when Christ comes and completes it. And in a few days, he was going to initiate the kingdom, again, by his death and resurrection. At that time, all authority in heaven and on earth would be given to him, but he would not exercise that authority fully until he returns. That's what the wedding feast represents. That's what's at stake. Enjoying the feast, enjoying the kingdom of God. We're being shut out from it in judgment. It all comes down to being ready. So what does the readiness represent? What determined who enjoyed the wedding feast and who did not? It's only those who were ready, according to verse 10, who entered the marriage feast and enjoyed the celebration. So how were they ready? Well, it's just like we saw at the end of chapter 24. They did their job. They carried out the role that they had in the ceremony. They lit their torches. They accompanied the groom to the feast. The other girls didn't carry out their task. So they didn't get to enjoy the rest of the celebration. So again, there was a differentiation between foolish and wise people back in chapter 7. Jesus mentioned those wise people who built their life on the rock of his teaching. He talked about the storm of judgment coming and those who built their life on the rock of his teaching, they survived. But there are foolish people, he says, who did not build their life on the rock of his teaching. They built it on sand. And when the judgment, the storms of judgment came, those do not survive. It's listening to Jesus. Listening to him, doing what he says that Jesus describes as the difference between those who are wise and foolish. Both in chapter 7 and 24, the person you want to be is the person who listens to Jesus. So being a true follower of Jesus is not a matter simply of making a one-time decision in your life at some point in your life. Being a true follower of Jesus is a matter of learning the truth about Jesus, that he's, he's our risen Lord with all authority in heaven and on earth, but who came to give his life as a ransom for the many, for sinners like us, dying on the cross. So he's both a crucified Savior and a risen Lord. And true true Christians are those who really believe that. But you don't know that you really believe that because you are really sincere about praying to receive salvation. You don't know that you really believe because you were joyful when you came down the aisle. You don't know that you really believe because you got baptized. You don't know that you really believe even if you began to listen to Jesus in the beginning. You only know that you have saving faith when you keep listening to Jesus all the way to the end. So that's our first and chief way to respond to this. Our response is to believe that Jesus is our Savior and Lord. And to begin to and keep listening to him. All the way to the end. Whether that end is our own death or when he returns. That's the only way to be ready. So that's what we encourage you to do. Respond with faith and repentance now. And then continue in it. I don't know if you've watched kids play hide-and-seek or 
You can remember when you played it last, which for me was a couple weeks ago. But you have somebody who's counting, and, and others are frantically trying to find a hiding space. And you don't know how long they're going to count, or in the case of Luke, how high they're going to count. And so you've got to hide really quickly. And, and there are those times when the kids, they're hiding, and they, they, they just they can't, they're indecisive. They can't figure out a place to hide. Or somebody else comes and hides right next to them. And they're like, I'm not going to hide here anymore. And so they go and hide. And that's exactly when the person yells out, ready or not, here I come. And it's over. They get caught. They're, they're not ready. They're not hiding. Well, we cannot know when Jesus is coming back. So we will either be ready or not when he comes. And Jesus is warning his disciples here because he wants them to be ready. There's no time to mess around. There's, there is no time for indecision. There's no time to waste. Now is the time to be ready for Jesus. Always now. But are there times that, that true believers sin? Of course, there are. We're not yet made perfect as we will be when Christ returns. But true believers, when true believers sin, they listen to Jesus and they repent. But are there times when that repentance is slow? When it's not immediate? Yes, that is true. And in fact, there are parts in our life, there are times in our life in our immature state where there are things that we don't even realize are problems until later. That, that, that's all true. But the overall course of a true believer's life is progress. Over time, true believers keep following Jesus. So what else can we learn from this story? What can we learn from the wise girls? We can learn that the reward for readiness fits. So Jesus connected the readiness of the girls with their reward. What they were getting ready for was connected to what they enjoyed, what they, they then experienced. They were preparing for the wedding. When it was time to come, they were ready to enjoy it. So that was their reward, enjoying the wedding that they prepared for. So the task that we're given as disciples of Jesus relates to our reward. We're here to follow Christ out of love and admiration because we believe he really is our Savior. And we believe he's our Lord. And that's what makes us ready for his return. That's when we get to enjoy Christ fully. We're enjoying him now as we follow him. But that what we're experiencing now in following him is only a foretaste of what we get to experience when he returns. So that's, that's the proper idea of our reward. C.S. Lewis put it this way. There are different kinds of reward. There's the reward which has no natural connection with the thing you do to earn it. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary. If he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover. And he is not mercenary for desiring it. Marriage is the proper reward of love. The proper reward, rewards are not simply tacked onto the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. So these girls are pictured as doing this task, and we can imagine that they were looking forward to what they were preparing for. They were looking forward to the wedding that they got to be a part of. True believers are those who hope in Christ. So that's how his coming doesn't catch us off guard. We're looking forward to that. 
It's not that we're just listening to him so that we can have a wonderful afterlife. Being a Christian is not just putting up with Jesus so that you can get heaven. That's not what genuine followers do. We are those who long for his appearing, so our reward fits with our readiness. Second of all, we can learn something from these wise girls that naturally follows what I just said. The reward for readiness is worth it. In the, in the end, the, the doors are going to be shut. Only those who are ready enter. An entrance into that wedding feast is worth it. So enjoying the kingdom is worth it. Whatever you could find that distracts you in this present life that you could enjoy instead of following Jesus, I promise you, you will think it is utterly worthless if you are standing on the outside of that door in the end. It will not be worth it. Being ready, following Jesus is worth it. The reward for being ready is worth it. What can we learn from these foolish girls? First of all, we learn that you should not procrastinate with readiness. These girls ended up, these foolish girls ended up waiting to the last minute to try to pull together their torches to try to be ready. They failed to be ready for the bridegroom when he came. They didn't actually do what they were supposed to do. They didn't fill their containers with oil. They tried to do it when he was already coming, but it was too late. So we don't know when Christ is coming. We don't know when we'll see him. So we should never content ourselves with the idea, oh, I'm a true believer. I'm just taking a little longer for my repentance. It should never enter our mind. We should never think, I can go ahead and sin because I can just ask for forgiveness later. You actually don't know that you have that opportunity. In fact, you may not be a genuine Christian if that's your attitude. If you're saying, you know what? I don't need to be serious. I don't need to listen to Jesus. I can just ask for forgiveness later. That, that's a scary place to be. You never know how much time you have. So now is the time to repent. Always now. You should not procrastinate with your readiness. And second, you should not or you cannot piggyback on someone else's readiness. So each girl had to be ready. There's no way for the foolish girls to piggyback on what the wise girls had done. They only had enough oil for themselves. Each girl was individually responsible. And that's true for every Christian. You you cannot expect Jesus to let you in because your parents were Christians. Either you are his follower or you're not. Jesus isn't going to say when you get there, oh yeah, I knew your parents, you can come on in. He's not going to do that. He's either going to know you or he's not going to know you. We all face Christ as individuals with individual faith. You cannot piggyback on someone else's. Lastly, these foolish girls teach us that you will not have a do-over when it comes to readiness. The end is the end. So now is your chance. There is no second chance after you die or after Christ returns. When you stand before Jesus, what he's going to talk to you about is what you did in this life. Now is the time. 
Have you turned from your sin? Are you trusting in Christ? Are you following him? The end is the end. There are no do-overs. We cannot know when Jesus is coming back. and We're either going to be ready or not when he comes. So are you ready? Will the bridegroom know you when you see him? Do you believe that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord? Are you following Jesus in a way that shows that you really believe that? Are you turning from your sin? Are you dedicated to listening to what Jesus tells you to do? Do you gather regularly with the church to hear what Jesus wants his disciples to do? Do you meditate on his word daily? Do you pray depending on the spirit to do what Jesus calls you to do? Are you using the gifts he's given you to build up his body here at First Baptist so that we can all become more like Jesus? Are you listening to Jesus? Are you ready? Ready or not, he's coming. Join me in prayer. Spirit, it is a, it's a scary thing to think about this and to forget about your presence. So Holy Spirit, we do ask that, that you would do your work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. That you would work in us to want to do this and to carry it out. We cannot Respond to Jesus apart from your work in us. So Spirit, we do ask you to please do what you promised to do. And then help us to take steps of faith. Help us to demonstrate that we believe you. Not wait on you in some, some strange sense as though you were going to actually make us do what you call us to do. We ask for your grace. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your strength, your enablement to follow, to keep following Jesus. We ask for your conviction of those things in our lives, the sins, those encumbrances, those ways of living, the immature ways of living that are not holy as you are holy. That you would convict us of those things. That we would be quick to turn from them. That we would desire to be like the one who came and died for us and rose again. We'd want to be like him. And by your strength, we would be like him. We also ask that you would cause anyone here who does not truly know you to pay attention to this good news. Just as you did for Lydia back in Acts that you would cause anyone here to pay attention to this good news, that they would genuinely, on the basis of your strength, your grace, turn from their sin. Trust in Jesus. And we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your promises. We do now rely on them.